Welcome, friends, to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. This show is something of a bonus, following so hot on the heels of The Fortress of the Pale Part 2, but I had the opportunity to catch up with Oliver Brackenbury, editor of a new sword and sorcery magazine entitled New Edge. But what is it? This is from the back cover of Issue Zero. New Edge Sword and Sorcery takes the genre's virtues. Outsider protagonists, thrilling energy, wondrous weirdness, and a large body of classic tales. Then allies inclusivity, mutual creator support, a positive fan community, and enthusiastic promotion of new works into the mix. Issue Zero is out already, and Issues 1 and 2 are about to be kickstarted. So, what better time to sit down with Oliver and talk Moorcock, genre fiction, a little bit of gaming, editing and constructing an all-new Sword and Sorcery anthology mag, and a few other things along the way. We're back in Derry and Tom's, and I'm very happy to have with me Oliver Brackenberry. Now, funnily enough, we have looked at anthologies very, very briefly when we had Andrew Nett on the show, and we talked about a book of essays that he did around Dangerous Visions and New Worlds, and we talk more broadly about anthology publications like New Worlds and Dangerous Visions. But I'm absolutely delighted to have Oliver here, because Oliver, writer, screenwriter, editor, podcaster, and editor of an all-new sword and sorcery anthology, New Edge. So welcome to Derry and Tom's, Oliver. Hi, thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. And it's always great in this day and age when we've been through this period of Kindles and ebooks and PDFs. It feels like books are like vinyl and print is coming back in a big way. And the wonderful thing about New Edge Sword and Sorcery, of course, we'll talk about that shortly, but issue zero came out, the fall issue last year was available in print, was available in hardcover, and you're just about to go out to Kickstarter on issue one but as is generally the case on breakfast in the ruins when we have a new guest we always kick off by finding out what your background is with things like moorcock and particularly genre fiction so tell us how on earth did you get into this position and where did your interest start well um there's a large gap see when i was young i uh, fell into uh, steve jackson ian livingstone's fighting fantasy books that's the earliest fantasy i remember reading really loved the uh, adventuring through those the sorcery four-parter uh, mega story they did was a particular favorite and i must have read the hobbit i know i did and a few other sort of expected texts but for whatever reason, when I was around 10 or 11, I was one of those kids who just felt compelled to pick a team between fantasy and science fiction. Hmm. Don't ask me why. And don't ask me why I decided, oh, science fiction is much more sophisticated, you know, <laughs> smash cut all kinds of awful crap. Um, but uh, so I felt sort of fell in more with like William Gibson, cyberpunk and that kind of thing. And I was like, oh, fantasy is childish, whatever. Put it aside. Give me a break. But, you know, that's what I thought when I was like, you know, wise and 10 or 11. But that just kind of continued for a long time. I, I mostly slid off of also a lot of uh, sort of contemporary fantasy of the 90s. I don't know, the big sort of more epic high style fantasy, you know, more lots of love to the people who like it, but it kind of slides off me. Uh, mm. And so I just sort of, sort of thought broadly speaking, oh, I guess fantasy isn't really for me. Um, but there was a big exception to that that would kind of come slamming right back into my life uh, years later, which was I greatly enjoyed the Savage Sword of Conan comics, the reprints mm. of the mag big magazine size ones that were black and white and like a bit more adult. I didn't know to call it Sword and Sorcery or anything more separate at the time. I just was like, eh, it's Conan, I like it. Fast forward many years uh, to about, oh, I guess six to seven years ago now, 
And I'm living in Toronto and I'm doing volunteer work with something that I think any listener would be interested in because they do have uh, digital stuff, but anybody in Toronto or planning to pass through Toronto at any point in their lives may be interested. It's called the Merrill Collection. It has a longer name, I always bugger, but it's essentially a collection of speculative fiction, hmm. an archive running back 150 odd years. They have a first edition of Dracula, for example, and they have over 80,000 items. It originally began with a 5,000, I want to say, uh, item donation in 1970 by uh, famous uh, editor Judith Merrill. Hmm. Uh, and it's just an incredible research tool. And also a lovely quiet place to get a bit of writing done. And that's when I first found it. And when I was there, I thought, you know, I remember those savage sort of Conan's I used to read. I should probably read the actual original bloody stories that the you know the comics were riffing off of. So, you know, I started reading with the Lancer paperbacks and all that stuff. And very quickly I just fell deep, 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 deep down a well with sword and sorcery and uh, sort of the appendix N reading list, uh, mm. you know, from D and D that you know Gary Gygax, this whole thing of you know, this, the influences that allowed him to come up with D and D or co-create it. Uh, so yeah, and I just found, oh wait, this is the fantasy I was missing. You know, I really enjoy um, fantasy tales that are grounded in characters who aren't necessarily trying to save the world. You know, a couple mm. capital letters who have uh, more personal, maybe even kind of like less noble motivations, but aren't fully you know grim, dark, murderous bastards or whatever. And the sense of pre-codified fantasy. I really enjoy not having magic systems. Mm -hmm. uh, having weird, wonderful creatures that feel unique and strange, not part of an ecosystem, just another weird animal, you know, um, and magic that doesn't feel like another technology, but it's dark and mysterious and frightening and it comes at a terrible cost by and large. And that tends to be what you run into when you read fantasy pre-1980. There's exceptions yeah. to all of this, of course. I'm making broad statements. But I did find it quite a bit in Appendix N, and in particular in the Sword and Sorcery canon. And I spent the next few years with no plans to do anything with this knowledge. It was purely enjoyment. Um, just plowing through all the old texts I could find at the Merrill Collection and then secondhand bookstores I started raiding the disease got in my veins and now I've got books all over the house uh, in that <laughs> genre. Um, and uh, it was lovely too because I, I, I got into some of the scholarship because uh, the Merrill has old uh, like pulp magazines so I could look at like some of the original publication versions and weird mm. tales of some of these stories and I could also find uh, long out of print collections of non-fiction by big thinkers including Moorcock uh, and uh, the, the one that comes up to mind off the top of my head was Fafford and Me, a collection of Fritz Leiber's essays. Mm. And that was very interesting because they were from uh, several decades of his life. And this is something I really enjoy. And one of the big pleasures of Moorcock of him having been such a long uh, running prolific author. I love seeing how authors' thoughts on their genre and, and then their writing, actual writing, evolves over time. Mm. I really, really enjoy that. So it's been fun. Uh, reading, you know, I'm, I'm right in the middle right now of uh, Citadel, you know, the new Moorcock novel, mm -hmm. uh, The Network, and yet at the same time I recently had a read of an essay he had in Amra, uh, the fanzine in 61, uh, about this, uh, I don't think he was even calling it Sword and Sorcery yet, <laughs> you know and so it's just, yeah, it's, it's all fascinating anyway, that's a bit of an all over the show answer, pardon me the Kickstarter for issues one and two actually, um, launches on uh, Thursday, February 2nd I, we're recording this on the Monday and I have way too much caffeine in me uh, to try and keep going because it's been it's been uh, a lot to do. Yeah. <laughs> so I hope that's an adequate answer. <laughs> what, what a fantastic resource to have at your fingertips. Oh, it's incredible. I'm just down the street from it. I couldn't ask for more. And the, you know, the people who work there really know their stuff and have helped mm. uh, direct me to things I wouldn't have seen otherwise. 
And there's actually a not, uh, you know, it's mostly books, obviously, but uh, there's not a, not a small amount of original art there that's quite mm. fascinating. They even have, they can't quite cite the Providence, so I have to kind of put a disclaimer in front of this, but they have what they're pretty sure is original Clark Ashton Smith drawing uh, as well. Mm. So stuff like that, uh, it can be found there. And as I say, they have digitized some of the collections. So if you don't ever think you're going to go to Toronto, it's still worth Googling the Merrill Collection, checking it out. Um, yeah. Uh, and in fact, uh, I did actually end up doing a podcast uh, with them. I recently sort of stepped off because of, I'm busy now with the magazine, but I did two seasons of what's called Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection. If you search for that anywhere you find podcasts, you'll find, uh, you know, I think we've got up to 17 episodes uh, on different aspects of genre fiction, including the Sword and Sorcery episode. And the most recent one, uh, my sort of stepping off grand finale, was on climate fiction with Kim Stanley Robinson. Uh, mm. I'm quite proud of that one. Well, I'm proud mm. of all of them. Um, yeah, so that's, I guess, to give an idea of how impressed I was by the place I got sucked in, gave it many years of my life and did all kinds of stuff, including the podcast. So yeah, great yeah. resource. And definitely where I feel like I got my, um, let's say my bachelor's in sword and sorcery. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll put links to all those in the show notes when this goes out. It's interesting you should mention the development of writers as they go along over the course of their careers, because the last show that we put out just at the time of recording this was about the Fortress of the Pearl by Mocock mm. and just how different it is and how developed the writing style is compared to his earlier more urgent and um, vital style in the 1960s. But you also mentioned one of Mocock's essays from 1961 and I was having a conversation with a friend of the show, Anthony Piconti, a couple of days ago, and we were talking about Sword and Planet as well as Sword mm. and Sorcery. And I pulled yeah. out my Paisa Planet Stories edition of Surge and the Swordsman. And he wrote that when he was 16 or 15 or something. And then only five years later, he's writing essays for publication about the nature of Sword and Sorcery. And he's been the editor of Tarzan Monthly and, and all these different bits and pieces. Sometimes I have to pinch myself when we're actually talking about some of these stories. Because when you hit grey, old, fat and 50, like... I am. It's like when you see a sportsman and you think, you realise he's only 22 and you think, oh shit, how old am I? And how talented is, is he at his age? And it wasn't just Mocock, but lots and lots of these authors were producing this incredible, vital, raw fantasy fiction at ridiculously young ages. Mm. You know, it, we, we, all, we all come into our own whatever we do, however we do, and I would never try to diminish uh, the talent of him or anyone else. Um, but I think it's always worth kind of looking at what was the ecosystem in which these people were able to develop so quickly. You know, you're making me think of something uh, stupid that's been doing the rounds on Twitter recently where, you know, some idiot who has no thoughts about how art is produced uh, was posting a picture of a classical uh, Renaissance era statue uh, being like, so-and-so, I can't remember the name, sorry, but so-and-so made this at 23, what's stopping you? Like, what is the point of oh. that except to make people feel bad? And immediately anybody with any actual knowledge of art history would start dunking on them and saying, well, this person was raised from a young age by a master to be good at the, you know sculpture and had patrons so that he had to do nothing else with his life. Hmm. <laughs> that may have helped. I mean, there was also talent, but, you know, and then I look back into, to what we're talking about with uh, some of the... Um, of uh, magazine writers, short story writers of the you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever, who, you know, the big talents we talk about, obviously actually genuinely quite talented, but also um, coming of age with their writing in an era when there was a, a much bigger, more vibrant, uh, I think, um, literary scene, mm. particularly when it comes to short stories and the lower stakes of short stories and being able to uh, just kind of fling your, your art out there and try things and really try things. That's one thing I love about the short fiction uh, magazine. 
as a format is it's a great arena for people to experiment, try new characters without mm. the same high stakes of, say, putting a couple of years into a novel and then praying it sells, you know, enough copies to justify, you know, you being picked up by the publisher again kind of thing. Uh, so I, I do really, and also we're talking about back in the era, even to novels, when the Middleist existed, <laughs> again, a great playground. I read about, you know, I've, I've read a lot of science fiction uh, and fantasy from uh, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. But the stuff that feels the most, you know, out there to me is reading about publishers who would take on an author and who's pretty unknown and give them like a three, four, five book deal and go, ah, you know, who cares if the first book or two don't sell well? They'll find their feet. Maybe book three will do all right. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's what the publishing landscape was like in the UK around genre fiction. And I think it was the same in the States. I've often thought that I remember when I used to try and find these things on eBay and you would not be able to find anything that was in print in the UK, but you'd get it from the States. Because the States is so massive, you can have an independent publisher like Nightshade Press or someone like that, for example, who will pick up something that's been out of print, out of print for years, and they will publish it, and enough people will buy it to make it worth their while, which has been an absolute treasure over the years, and I really regret not getting their Clark Ashton Smith collection in hardcover i got the reissue paperbacks but the hardcovers look beautiful but that's just me as a collector being a nerd but all of the books that i used to have that were given to me by my granddad when i got rid of two-thirds of them and took them to effectively charity shops to get rid of them apart from a handful that i gave to friends who wanted them most of those were printed in the 60s or 70s by u.s or british publishers and the really tragic thing is most of them will have been out of print since the editions that I've got because so many obscure authors. I mean, who the fuck is going to republish Spearmen of Arn or something like that these days? Or it, all of those books are now lost to me, and I am going out of my way to try and replace them, much to Phil's chagrin when it comes to actually spacing <laughs> the house. But lots and lots and lots of them are just, if you can track them down on eBay, then you're fortunate, but they'll never be reprinted. And it's, it's like they're, it's like the treasure. So it's really satisfying that. Because of things like, I don't know, social media, Twitter, making connections and and actually the podcast scene as well mm -hmm. as, as a strong role in this, because I don't think you or I would have ever had a conversation if it wasn't for listening to certain podcasts which connect the dots and connect people together, has really made this whole scene of interest in all these things more vibrant. And because I follow certain accounts on Twitter, you come across things like um, New Edge, Volume Zero, which I... I think I said to you when we emailed, I picked it up in December, then forgot about it, forgot where I've put it. <laughs> and now I've, I went to Amazon because, of course, what we can say is they're at, at cost on Amazon yeah. in print. Yeah, and it's only three ninety nine US for the soft cover um, because issue zero, like it's not sustainable. We can't keep it at those prices. But yeah, um, but yeah and the hardcover is eleven ninety nine, and the digital is free, which is why it's sold off of Amazon. Amazon would not let me price it at zero. <laughs> right. um, but oh well. Uh yeah, the issue zero was uh, still is um, a passion project, prototype, promotional tool essentially. Because when I approached the people I collaborated with on it back in sort of June of last year, I said, "Look, I don't have money, <laughs> but what I do have is uh, experience with you know large scale collaborative artistic projects, um, a passion for doing this. You know, I've got everything but the money. Uh, you know." And they said, <laughs> "Okay, fine, we'll take a chance on it." I said, "Okay, but here's the thing. You know, you don't want to do. You run into this lot in independent film where I have uh, some experience, where you get people saying, come and work on my thing for free,' and that learn you the chance to." Work on my next thing for free. Fuck yeah. off. So, uh, oh, sorry, pardon me. I don't know what your stance is on. Cursing. You could get exposure. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. So, yeah. so I didn't want to pull that one on them. So I said, look, guys, here's the deal. I'm 
going to do this issue zero as a test to see can I even do it? Will if I do it, will I like it? You know, mm. all that kind of stuff. And that's why one well, one of the reasons why I didn't do open submissions because I want to keep it manageable, uh, and why I did Amazon POD because I didn't want to also take on the task of figuring out how to you know print professionally as sure. we we're going to be doing with the Kickstarter. So I just kept it focused on the magazine. Did that over the course of the summer. Got out at the end of September, and the point was, well, okay, you know, I I can't sell this for money if I ask the people to do it for free. That's obscene, mm. uh, and it'd be better to do it for free or at cost, which is the absolute minimum Amazon will let me sell. Like you're just paying for Amazon production and shipping with you uh, do that. Um, but that's good because I want to get it out and try and build an audience because I was already thinking ahead and going, you know, if I like this enough, I want to keep doing it. And if I want to yeah. keep doing it, my ethos is to pay contributors as much as possible and run it as a business, not a hobby. Uh, not because I expect to get rich from it. My God, it's independent publishing. Mm -hmm. But because in order to keep it viable, you know, you have to be able to pay uh, the contributors enough to keep coming back and to keep them doing what they're doing. Uh, but also yourself. Because if life gets stressful and you've got a big thing you're doing in your spare time, the thing that doesn't bring in money is the first thing that collapses. And if that collapses, well, then I'm not paying the contributors anymore. Mm. They're not going to be in the magazine because the magazine's folded. So I'm trying to be sensible about how I go about it while still keeping a focus on, you know, quality stories, good art, yeah. all that stuff that we, you know, enjoy as readers. Uh, because, yeah, I want to make the kind of thing I'd want to read, you know, cliche, but true. Uh, and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, as it happens, I bought three more copies, and then I oh, found then I, <laughs> then I found the copy that I bought in December. But three those three copies will be going out to uh, patron demons, so we'll we'll draw a couple of numbers towards the end, and then uh, we'll find oh, out who's you. picked those up, and I'll send them out. What I probably should have done was uh, wait until we picked some numbers, because then I could have ordered them on Amazon and just got them sent straight to people. But <laughs> that's just me being a dullard at the end of the day. Now. You mentioned earlier on that you get these things on Twitter. It's like, you know, such and such did X. What are you doing with your life? And the answer is usually because I'm a fucking schlub and I like talking about these things. I'm not a writer and I'm not going to get involved in those kind of things. So how how did you end up being actually on the other side of that equation and writing fiction and writing screenplays? Oh, God. I mean... um so I'll try not to give you my whole life story because I'm I'm one of those annoying precocious kids who was like dictating stories to his mum before he could actually <laughs> write his alphabet. Uh, so you know it, it it was from an early age. But uh, the less less precious answer. I mean honestly, I just I was always writing in some form or another. Uh, classic you know origin story. I got into role playing games. Although funny enough, I didn't play D and D until I was in my late twenties. Mm. Uh, it was Shadowrun and some other stuff. But anyway, a bit of Call of Cthulhu actually as well. Uh, but point is whatever. Uh, so role playing games were an expression. But I was writing short stories for fun and tried to write a novel uh, which had a love interest uh, i was in high school had a love interest that bore a suspicious resemblance to a girl i fancied uh didn't go anywhere and <laughs> the novel or that uh, and then it started to coalesce a bit more as i went into university and i was getting an english degree because i knew writing and, and reading was just my life as, as in terms of what i loved and i thought very visually and i thought well okay i would also like to make a living so i can make it what i do all the time and I started looking at screenwriting, and that was sort of a long road. It took a while to find uh, an entryway there because I came from a family with no connections and not, you know, no real money, which play important roles. We like to think it's a meritocracy where anybody who just writes a good enough script comes in and conquers the world, but uh, nope. <laughs> Once in a while that happens, but it's an exception, not the rule. Anyway, whatever, like I say, my life story. So fast forwarding through my 20s, doing short films and web series, you know, collaborating with my peers, making stuff. Eventually got to go into a... Um, prestigious television development program through uh, the National Screen Institute in Canada, and that's been helpful. And, and uh, But, you know, it's bloody hard to get a TV show made. I'm at a point right now 
where I've got two projects that have been going along for a while and might blossom this year. You know, mm. fingers crossed. We'll see. But that's all I can say. Mm. Uh, and I have been lucky enough to get paid for my work a few times. So that's nice. Uh, not everybody writes me place and saying that. Um, but it's not my full time career. I wish it was. In the meanwhile, uh, I chose a few years back to write a novel in part because I had an idea I really wanted to write, of course, but also because uh, one of the real bummers of screenwriting is you can put a novel's worth of effort into a feature film or a TV pilot, you know, screenplay, that kind of thing. And then, like, maybe a couple dozen people read it. You know, some friends, if you're lucky, some executives will read it and ponder paying you for it. But then, eh, nobody, nobody picks it up. And, wow, that was a novel that 12 to 24 people or whatever read. That's not a lot. Even for the, the, the you know, most unsuccessful self-pub rush jobs tend to get more than that. And so I just thought, God, all right, well, I'm going to write something where, you know, I can get out there at least a bit more. And I did okay. Got a, got a small publisher uh, to pick up my first novel, Junkyard Leopard. I tried self-pub because I was curious about that for my second novel. Um, felt a bit like a big blog post, but I don't mm. think I did have a good approach to it. I know it works for some people. It didn't work for me, at least on that book. And so after that, I thought, God, what can I do that's different? You know, I'm really, I'm, I, at that point, I felt like I'd done a lot of creative things for the sake of doing them. And I was no longer satisfied with that. If I was going to do something creative, whether uh, it was my third novel or uh, this magazine, for example, I, I just thought, you know, I want to actually try and make it as successful as I can without setting like unrealistic, I'll conquer the world or, or I'll be very sad, you know, expectations. Mm. Uh, and so the novel, I thought I'd try something different. I was curious about podcasting. I, at that point, had done a few episodes of the one I mentioned earlier for the Friends of Merrill. And I thought, hey, what if I do my own podcast? I'll call it So I'm Writing a Novel. And it's like behind the scenes following me as I write my third novel, a sword and sorcery novel, which is my uh pretending i've had a long career like moorcock or like liver had where you know you get those stitch ups right of story where they truly they continuity gets forced onto it by picking yeah. up all the stories that were published everywhere so i'm just writing it as 17 short stories uh but with the sort of the illusion that you know they've been written over decades and they're being yeah. stitched together into you know um so yeah i'm having fun with that it's about three quarters of the way outlined and uh and i outline in such detail the drafts come quick so you could argue it's three quarters written um and I've really enjoyed the podcast, and it's been a great way to meet people. And in fact, uh, several of the writers in issue zero of New Age Sword and Sorcery are people I'd interviewed already right. on that podcast, because if I'm not talking about my novel, I'm interviewing people on there. Uh, and yeah, and then that connected me to the Whetstone Magazine Discord, which is where I sort of met the real Sword and Sorcery scene, I would argue. I mean, it's in a bunch of places online. You know, you have a lot of Facebook groups and so on. But uh, honestly, the most vibrant, like my favorite place to discuss the genre is the Discord server for Whetstone Magazine. For those who are listening and don't know what I'm talking about, Whetstone is a wonderful magazine put out of the States. It's for free, digital only. Um, and the whole idea of it is to give amateur authors a chance to get their sort of you know, early publications, give their, yeah. you know, get their first crack uh, or for more experienced authors to kind of muck about again, low stakes, like I was saying earlier hmm. um, uh, and and try something completely different or new or whatever. You know, I'm lucky I had a story in issue six, actually the most recent one uh, called hmm. Hunter that I'm quite proud of, but uh, yeah, the, the discord for that uh, is a wonderful place online. Uh, and yeah, through, that was actually where the discussions uh, back in the spring about, cause you know, you get these cyclical discussions in niche subgenres of like, how do we make this thing bigger? You know, uh, Sword and Sorcerer was big in the 30s, and then it was big again, sort of 60s through mid 80s. It's been fallow, but it's kind of coming back, and it feels like, could we get it to a third wave? Can we get that? And so I, I don't know what was different about this particular conversation this spring, but something gave it an energy I hadn't seen before. And it was like just three days of just waking up and going, oh, I'm typing, and, you know, and everybody going mad, discussing, you know, how can we make it uh, bigger? How do we get younger readers in? How do we make it more inclusive? Because, you know, the 
no maliciousness. I'm just saying, you know, the 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 audience of sword and sorcery is somewhat homogenous at the moment. Mm-hmm. It is largely sort of you know 35 plus uh, white guys, yeah. um, and you know. Some of my best friends are, yeah, I'm one of them. Uh, but it's like, you know, we want to expand. If we want to make it bigger, you got to bring everybody in. And even if there's no maliciousness, if people who are not part of that uh, demographic look over and see pretty much just that demographic, you can't blame them for thinking, oh, well, maybe that's not for me or maybe mm. I'm not welcome. Um, so that was part of the conversation was like, how do we how do we break out of this sort of um, homogeneity? And so by the end of all those conversations and I started talking to people, I was thinking, you know, I'd had ideas for a magazine two years prior, but it wasn't focused enough. So I put that idea down. And now I thought, well, here's a focus. Here's an energy. I'd like to make a magazine, Sword and Sorcery. I want to try and contribute to making this thing bigger. And, try, you know, I like uh, more variety, and not just in the, the um, you know, diversity of the authors and their characters. Though that is, of course, important to me. But also just variety and storytelling, because I think Sword and Sorcery is an incredibly flexible genre. You mm. can make it very recognizable as what it is, but do a lot within that. You know, I'm a big fan of, uh, have you ever read Brian Murphy's book, Flame no. and Crimson, The History of Sword and Sorcery? No. Okay, well. I think lots of other people, including, say, uh, Howard Andrew Jones, have written excellent definitions of the genre. Other people have written about it. But my personal favorite is Brian Murphy's book. It's a wonderful uh, piece of uh, genre history if you want to read all about, you know, sword and sorcery from birth, actually a little before its birth, through to sort of lying fallow in the 80s and now what's going to happen next. Great book. And his definition in it, what I like about it most is it is um, flexible. You outline seven things that you tend to come across in sword and sorcery, you know, short episodic stories, more uh, cosmic, you know, Lovecraftian kind of weird horror. Uh, like I was saying earlier, not so much the codified thing where, you know, it's a werewolf shoot it with a silver bullet or whatever. Yeah. Um, outside of protagonist, personally motivated, all this good stuff. And it's like seven kind of posts marking the boundaries. But the way I like to describe it is I say to me, this is, this is me putting my words in Brian's mouth, I say, like, imagine it almost like a really berserk wrestling ring where you have these seven posts and they go, okay, here's the here's the the boundaries. But running between them is really elasticated rope that can be stretched and pushed out and leapt off of and done all kinds of cool things. And so that was something else I wanted because um, I enjoy a good Conan pastiche or Conan riff as much as anyone. Mm. But you do sometimes run into people who like the subgenre for whom that's all there is. Mm. And anything different isn't, you know. So I, I want to see what I can do to push the storytelling as well as, uh, say, the variety of the audience and the readership and the writership. Um, and so that was the mission with the magazine. Uh, you know, I, I, I said, okay. Uh, you know, somebody said, oh, Oliver, you should do an anthology. I said, I'd rather do a magazine, but would anybody help me? Because that's a huge task. And to my delight, uh, quite a few people on the Whetstone server went, yeah. And mm. so I lucked into a wonderful sort of, you know, volunteer staff. I've got a layout and design guy, a social media person. Thank goodness I could not do that on top of the magazine. Uh, a copy editor. So I'm really happy for that because quality is very important to me. You know, uh, my parents are both goldsmiths, actually. Uh, came over from England uh, and then had me in Canada. Um, and uh, growing up with craftspeople as parents, even if you yourself don't go into a trade like that, um, it will kind of make you care more about doing it right. Not mm. being a perfectionist, not, you know, Perfect is the enemy, good and done, right? But just uh, appreciating uh, attention to detail, really thoughtfulness going into something. And I've tried to bring that into the magazine. Mm. So and I was very happy to get the copy editor on board. Of course, that really helped with it. And then we spent the summer making the thing. And well, I'm back to where I started again. Pardon me. I have been thinking so hard about this thing practically all day, every day since June. I sometimes get a bit circular in my speaking about it so feel free to cut in i will not be offended no that's absolutely (laughs) fine that's absolutely fine i think fantasy fiction people get hung up on classifications like whiskey is it medicinal or is it pt or heavy metal is it god so many classifications of heavy metal is it doom or is it stoner or is it grindcore 
or mask or whatever the fuck these things mean. I ain't got a clue. But if it's loud and it's chunky and it's got a good drive and it's got a good groove, it'll do me. But when you say that you're setting out to do specifically a sword and sorcery magazine, are there any boundaries to that? Okay, let's put Tolkien pastiche aside with dwarves and elves and everything else. You've talked about being more broad in the definitions, but where does sword and sorcery stop and become something else? Well, I mean, you mentioned heroic fantasy, and I think right there, that's an easy one. It's the motivation. Right. Uh, one of the uh, authors I was lucky enough to get in issue zero, who will be returning uh, for issue uh, one or two, I haven't figured out who goes in which issue yet, mm-hmm. uh, by and large, is David C. Smith. And, you know, he wrote uh, a series of uh, great Red Sonia uh, books with, the, um, with uh, oh God, I'm, I'm going to bug it, Tyranny. Uh, it was the name, last name of the author he co-authored them with. Um, and there's done a bunch of other sword and sorcery, including quite recently, actually, an excellent novel called Sometime Lofty Towers. Uh, but he also wrote, back in the day, uh, at the beginning of his career, a series around a character called Auron. And he himself would tell you, well, that's heroic fantasy. And you look at it, and it seems to have a lot of the same trappings of a sword and sorcery, and it does. But at the end of the day, it's a character who's out to, you know, it's, it's sort of big, high-world ending stakes mm. and heroic motivations, you know? And that's that's the difference for me right there. Sword and sorcery, you can have characters do things that are noble or be, be heroic in some ways, but it can't be, I would argue, um, necessarily what the story is about. But then, you know, I come back to a, something I don't think I've, I've properly elaborated on, Brian Murphy's definition. Like I said, he mentioned seven aspects that you tend to run into, but this is the wisdom of his definition and why I hew so closely to it. The wisdom of his definition is he says, look, you don't need all seven things. And he doesn't say how many things you need. He doesn't say it has to be four or five or whatever. He just says, look, here's the seven things you tend to run into with the genre. If there's enough in there for you, the reader, to feel like, yeah, this is sword and sorcery, congratulations, you're reading sword and sorcery. Mm. And I really like that flexibility. I really like putting a bit of power on the reader and just saying, look, man, it's a feeling. And there's a few things that do feel wildly out of place and you'll probably get pushback on them, you know? Mm. Uh, like if it's a you know a story about a, a group, a fellowship, if you will, uh, traveling to save the world, well, it's, you know, it's probably not sword and sorcery. But, uh, <laughs> but there's just a lot of room within that. And, you know, there are stories that at a glance you would never think of sword and sorcery, but then you work through his Brian's checklist. Like I uh, was recently on the Elder Sign podcast and we discussed The Dark Eidolon by Clark Ashton Smith. And that's, you know, it's big, wild, you know, more is more, uh, lots of crazy magic and madness, uh, revenge story, basically. But I worked through Brian's checklist out of curiosity, and it nailed all seven. (laughs) (laughs) And I just thought, yeah, you know, that was deeply satisfying because I thought it was, you know, it felt like sword sorcery to me. But then I just kind of ran it through this kind of thing, and it worked perfectly. Um, And so there you go, right? Um, so it's this funny thing where I think you have to have some genre definition because if you don't define, if you don't draw any lines, you have a blank page, you have nothing. Mm. But I like the idea of those lines having some bend. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, you, you, instead of being prescriptive to others and using genre definition as a cause for argument as opposed to, say, interesting discussion when there is a difference, um, I just think use it as a, as a, a guiding light to help express yourself, whether uh, just in quotation marks as a reader, expressing how you feel about it, what you enjoy, or uh, as a writer, of course, expressing your writing, or as an editor trying to guide his magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and because and, I, I, I do like to, um, you know, in the summer with the authors, I did really like to, if I could, time zones, et cetera, allowing have a, a phone call or a web call with them. And be like, hey, you know, what got you excited about your story? What was the theme or the image of the line? And what is your goal? Like, I do try to um, 
work with the authors to strengthen and and, and mega, you know, sort of megaphone their voice, not to put mine over top. But mm. at the end of the day, I'm the editor. It's my magazine. Of course, my ideas and thoughts on this whole genre are shaping it, uh, which is part of why I guess I'm, I'm here to explain, you know, what's, what's, sure. what's this magazine going to give you? And so, you know, uh, Issue Zero has some of what you might call very uh, traditional uh, sorcery, uh, although still with some, some little, you know, uh, tweaks to it. Uh, and then it has, for example, one story uh, I really wanted to make sure I kind of went outside the scene for at least one author. So uh, long story short, I picked up an author, uh, TK Rex, who came in and did a story that to some people wouldn't be sword and sorcery. And I certainly feel it definitely pushes those those elasticator ropes I was describing earlier uh, about as far as any of the stories uh, in the issue does. Um, dealing with themes that you don't run into as much in sword and sorcery, like environmentalism. Um, but... I'm here for it because I'm, I'm, it was an experiment. I'm really glad I did, and I do want to keep uh, keep bringing in you know the real SNS uh, people for for writing it, of course. But I want to keep looking to people in other genres and other places. Uh, you know, Taya, uh, is, that's the T and TK Rex. Um, you know, she's written fantasy. I read I read a fantasy story of hers that partly made me think, oh, let's get her on board. But she hmm. definitely thinks a lot about uh, science. And that comes through in the story or, you know, horror authors are a natural go-to for sword and sorcery, of course, mm. because of the, the overlap from the dawn of the genre back in weird fiction. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I want to look at more horror authors. I'll be bringing some of them in for issues one and two. Uh, there's Canadian author Gemma Files, who's quite excellent at horror. And I'm very happy to have her on board. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and I've honestly, I've, I don't know that I'll get the chance to act on it with these issues. I'm talking with one author. We're still figuring it out. But romance, I think, has incredible overlap with sword and sorcery. Think about stories. Let's go to a real big classic one, uh, People of the Black Circle mm. by Robert E. Howard, that Conan story, which is sort of set in like not Afghanistan slash kind of India. Yeah. And, but, you know, it's all about him uh, falling in love with the, essentially the Devi Yasmina princess over the course of it. But uh, by the end, spoiler for an almost 100-year-old story, close your ears if you don't want to hear this uh, for 30 seconds. Uh, at the end, uh, they want to be with each other, but their responsibilities to their respective people, you know, mean they have to part ways. But they part ways in this wonderful method, way of like just showing mutual respect and going, oh, well, we'll do battle with our armies later. Oh, ha, ha. Um, not doing it justice. Point is, I love that story. And I know I'm not the only person who's thought, well, but what if they did stay together and had adventures? And what would that be like? Uh, what if, you know, what if Conan actually stayed with any of the women he meets? <laughs> For more than one story um and what have we got to explore that relationship and i know i'm not alone in that because not only from talking to people and just you know other fellow fans um lynn carter and sprague de camp and i want to say uh oh god one of the one of the guys they brought in late on the lance beyond nyberg yeah Bill didn't yeah. they didn't they do a novel length story which had kind of a vignette in it where the debbie yasmina shows up again and conan and her like have a little you know romantic reunion for one night and they finally get to sleep together which was on the you know they sort of blue ball each other over people of black circle and never got to consummate uh and so you so there you go right the two of the biggest yeah. fanboys in the history of conan uh you know because carter and camp uh wanted to see that yeah. uh 50 odd years ago, whatever that was. Uh, and so I just think, yeah, romance actually has a lot of overlap, I think, with so and sorcery. And so, uh, yeah, I'll go on all tired about that if I don't stop myself. Point is, this is to further illustrate what I'm saying. I think you mm. can do so much with it. It's so exciting. Um, and I, I hope that we fund issues one and two so we can get to do more stuff there and I can kind of demonstrate what I'm talking about more yeah. uh, than just yapping on. Although, God, I do love the sound of my own voice. Pardon me. Again, I, I feel like I'm doing time. Talking no, it's it's fantastic. Podcast is an audio medium, isn't it? So <laughs> we want we want that content. But one of the reasons I love sword and sorcery, and I would say I prefer it to in inverted commas heroic fantasy, is because it's grounded. Because people wanna they wanna get through today. If they do get money, they've lost it by the start of the next story. 
if they get treasure. And actually, you mentioned fighting fantasy books earlier on, and this is why my taste in role-playing games tends towards that end as well. I don't want to be a fighter with a stronghold with 120 million gold pieces in, in, in a chest. I want my characters to finish one story, and they may have riches and treasures, but the next story, I want them to be a bum. You know, I, I want them to be, have lost everything or have gambled everything because they they live, they love, they fight, they, you know, yada yada. Have yeah. you played Dungeon Crawl Classic Lankmar? No, but my mum and dad got me it for <laughs> Christmas last Brilliant. year, the year before last, and I still haven't opened the box. Well, I, I mentioned it just because you would really like, going by what you were telling me, the fact that it has um, luck as an attribute in, in uh, that comes and goes much quicker than it does in regular DCC. Yeah. Uh, you're very much, in, uh, it, it, it helps get you the kind of Baffin Grey Mouse or somewhat more swashbuckling tone by having it come and go easily and encouraging players to take wild chances, swing off the chandelier and kick the guy in the face kind of stuff. Yeah. And to yeah, after an adventure, if you've lost a lot of luck and you're kind of low, you can try and regain it by just blowing your money because the whole point is that you guys are like Baffin and Grey Master and you kind of lose most of your money between adventures. And yeah. it's got huge tables on how that will happen. And by the <laughs> end of the result, you not only lose your money, but you tend to get a fun story hook to slingshot you into the next adventure. Oh, nice. So, you know, it's very much like, oh, we know you slept with the wrong noble and now the palace guard is chasing you. You dropped your purse on the way out of the palace, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, it's it's really fun. And yeah, you'll, you'll like it, I think. Uh, going well, that sounds fantastic me. because they're actually gamifying some of the yep. little elements of of that kind of stuff that I really, really enjoy. And that's oh great. yeah. Well, the, the DCC guys like Goodman Games. I mean, they're great and they really get it. You know, they're part of what got me down this path. Not only because um, I actually became aware of the appendix and not through D and D, but through Dungeon Crawl Classics, mm. which is rooted in the appendix and literature, and they do a wonderful job of having information at the back of the main rulebook, but also on their website, their socials. They are always educating people about that, that reading list, that body of work, which I think is great, uh, and, and have ads for the Appendix and Book Club podcast, mm. of course. That's a great resource. It's right yeah. there in the title. Uh, and so that actually was a big part of what got me down the road. And then they publish uh, what I, you know, I, I enjoy many magazines, but I think the premier one, and I don't know that anybody would argue with me about this, is Tales from the Magician's Skull, which is published by Goodman Games. It's edited by Howard Andrew Jones, wonderful guy. I've gotten to the privilege of getting to know over the last couple of years. Um, and part of the fun of the uh, you know the issues, um, and this is what part of what grabbed me. I actually bought my first copy, uh, issue number three, at a gaming store, which stocked oh. it in part because Goodman Games publishes it, but also because they have this fun thing where in the back of it they'll have stats or the monsters and the magical items or whatever oddness that you run into right. and the stories that you've enjoyed reading. Which is a fun trick, even if you never do anything with it in your games. It's just, it's just fun. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think they used to do that, or at least to some degree, um, in Dragon Magazine back in the day. But I could be misremembering. Anyway, uh, yeah. So uh, you know, and that magazine has been kind of my north star because I really like what they do in terms of coming back to what I was saying earlier about craft and quality. Uh, they really, really care about the physical object. And until recently, when I guess COVID paper shortages things got in the way. Um, their first six issues, I want to say, were printed on this lovely kind of parchment paper that made you mm. feel like you were picking up, you know, a classic um, pulp magazine <laughs> from mm. back in the day. Uh, you know, and I think like I said, I've got the privilege, I've got access to an archive where I can actually touch those old pulp magazines. So I'll tell you, they got it. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, like that that, uh, that has been kind of my North Star in terms of quality and what I'm aspiring to with New Age Sword and Sorcery. You know, the uh, print on demand, I thought, came out pretty well. But uh, I, I, the new challenge for me this time around is I'm not doing open subs yet, 
but I this time I yeah I did the research found someone who knew more than me of course which is a good thing to do listeners if you ever go on a big creative project find people who know more than you do mm-hmm. uh, and uh, yeah we're going to be working with a proper printer uh, and if we hit certain stretch goals we'll get to upgrade the hardcover to be even sexier with uh, ribbon bookmarks and foil embossed nice. cover and if we really blow the roof off, I might add uh, colored end pages on there, which uh, for anyone who's not familiar with the term end pages, you know, when you get an old paperback and it's got like yellow, purple, red, green, whatever, along the edges of the pages, mm-hmm. I, I could maybe do that if we, <laughs> if, it, if it does really well. Because yeah, I love the book as object. I yeah. love it, love it, love it so much. It's funny you should mention that. I got my um, broken binding edition of uh, Citadel of Forgotten Myths, and that's got the lovely edge <sighs> page edges yeah Black with the painted sword. sword i love it yeah it's nice <laughs> isn't it oh and yeah. this ah yeah simple as chaos on top and bottom yeah really quite, quite pleased with that brooke if anybody's listening check out the broken binding in the uk they're doing some lovely stuff but before we come back to new edge sword and sorcery you mentioned something about the conan stories and de camp carter and beyond nyberg writing basically fan fiction where the one oh, yeah. the wanted conan and this character to kind of get their due a little bit rather than, you know, Robert, yeah, well, it's over now, move on. Yeah. <laughs> They've done that a lot in the in the comics, particularly the Dark Horse comics. There was a whole run with the Queen of the Black Coast character. Where yeah, I believe, I yeah. They she got went, her own series. Yeah, they went on for for ages with, like, original stories to try and connect the dots. Um, I don't think they were entirely successful, but it is kind of always interesting when people try to expand the Conan mythos. I don't think they're always particularly successful, but I just thought I'd recall that because I did read it about six months ago. I was, I was collecting the Dark Horse mm. collections, which ran, well, up until when Dark Horse lost it and it moved over to Marvel, and I've not read any of the new Marvel Conan adaptations, but I think they've lost it again now as well, and I think it's going elsewhere Yeah, again, yeah. It? It's moved on to, oh gosh, you know, I can't bloody remember. I know the author uh, that's going to be taking over, or has taken over, and his stories are coming out soon, Jim Zub. Uh, he's a real talent, also out of Toronto, a good old Canadian. Right. Pardon me, sorry. Uh, listener. Um, but yeah, I can't remember who uh, who has it now. Pardon me. I, I just think of Titan, but that's unrelated. That's to do with the new Conan novel uh, by James Sterling. Uh, so yeah, no, I'm sorry. Pardon me. I can't remember. No, uh, I, I was just it. became aware of it the other day. But, I, I never but yeah, no, it is, it is fun to stitch things together, right? I mean, mm. and, and I think it can be enjoyable. Certainly, I'm mean, here I am reading the new Warcock novel. Why not? Let's cram a little bit more in, into, you know, his gap year or whatever. Uh, <laughs> between, you know. uh, yeah, yeah, uh, I think it can be quite enjoyable. Uh, I, it's funny, I've read um, Random Warcock. Why not? Seems like the podcast. Uh, mm. You know, I read um, the first six Elric books in paperbacks I hunted down. So mm. I read uh, them in sort of what I was all on the, on the young Warcock uh, streak. Yeah. Um, and then uh, it was around the time I found and enjoyed Stormbringer uh, that uh, they announced the big hardcover collections uh, that they've just come out with. And I always mess up the company name. Sorry, everyone. I'm bad for names today. It's Saga, right? Saga, um, yeah. I think it's Tor, but maybe it's a partnership with Tor anyway. Uh, yeah, Tor uh, have but, been publishing some of his new novels. I think they're publishing The Woods of Arcady this year, which uh, is the okay. sequel to The Whispering Swarm. But yeah, it was Saga Press, which I think is part of Simon and Schuster. Um, yes, it is. Yeah, the, you're uh, right. the, the Elric collections. Yeah, I think I've misspoken a few times and called it a Tor thing. Anyway, uh, yeah, I picked up the first two volumes of that and I rather enjoyed reading uh, stuff that wasn't from those first six ones, uh, like, uh, you know, Fortress of the Pearl. Yeah. And I. I have talked to people for whom those collections have been their first exposure. And it is interesting to hear them talk about the kind of weird, um, almost tonal whiplash you get mm. going from, you know, Elric of Nibony, sort of not 
I mean, young, young Moorcock, but not the youngest Moorcock no, right. Elric. And then, you know, and then, oh, Fortress of the Pearl, we're leaping forward to 89. <laughs> yep. You know, and then back and forth and back. Well, now it's Revenge of the Rose, 91. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I um, I wonder what that's like. I, I, if I'd waited a little longer, I suppose I would have had the same experience. I do uh, wonder I mean, about how... that myself because we've talked about it quite yeah. a lot. You know, t- to jump from... I mean, Elric of Melnibonair, even compared to the fix-up novels that were consisted of short stories that he originally published in the early 60s, Elric of Melnibonair's, even though it's a fast read, it's still a more, slightly more considered pace than mm-hmm. something like a, a story like The Dreaming City. And and, and certainly Stormbringer, which is a fix-up, I think, of three of the stories. Um, yeah, from, yeah from I, the I'd early have to 60s. look it up. You to know. go from Elric of Melnibonair to <laughs> The Fortress of the Pearl, because we've just revisited the Fortress of the Pearl, mm. and I'll be repeating myself because we'll just put that episode out. But it is very, very different, and it's more of a piece with Dragon in the Sword, with City in the Autumn Stars, and with Revenge of the Rose, and it sits much more neatly and consistently with them than it does with really any of the Elric stories that were written in the sixties and seventies. But I think I've appreciated that more, and I've appreciated the qualities of that story more reading it now compared to when I read it in nineteen eighty nine when it came out. And I think my eyes rolled into the back of my head because it wasn't chopping enough people's heads off and they right. weren't stuck in enough souls and everything else. When I, was, when I was 17 years old, that's what I wanted. Well, of course, yeah, we all have different priorities, different ages. And also, I, it does, yeah, it does bring around to something I think about a lot with Sword and Sorcery and trying to reinvigorate it, bring it to a new popularity, which is that what is what role does our affection for these characters and these authors play in our appreciation of some of these works and our being fine with the whiplash of going back and forth through their careers or, you know, we want to read the thing and then your order, but we know, okay, sure. It's going to go from the living which is one town to, um, Pearl, which is another and bang on bang of the back sword. Oh, wow. Okay. We're not, never going back to more heads getting chopped off and so on. Like that affection, I think guides us through our, our uh, continuing to dig into these authors and to being okay with say something like that, leaping up and down around in tone and so on across the career of a character. If we read them in linear as opposed to publication order and gives us the endurance one would even say to go through the many different editions and hunting through the secondhand stores and so on. Hmm. But I think one, uh, something that holds uh, this genre back at times, and I'm trying very hard to uh, work around it um, is that's a lot of work. To ask of someone who wanders in and goes, well, I've watched uh, a few episodes of Game of Thrones. What's this about? You know, we I think we really need to be welcoming and understanding for the casuals, the normies, as I joke, with no shade, because you can't expect everyone to be into everything. Um, And I think we want to make this thing bigger and more uh, popular. You've got to try and make it appealing without watering down what the thing is. And so I think that's. Yeah, what, what do you and without making it seem like too onerous to get into it? Because even if you're not being an outright intentionally obnoxious gatekeeper, you know, uh, some archetype out of a, a '90s film of a record store clerk being you know, annoying, uh, you know, oh, you don't know that already. Uh, even if you're not doing that more obviously obnoxious thing, uh, it can be difficult not to meet someone and go, oh, you like something vaguely relevant to this thing I love, and then just drown them in too much detail and mm. make it sound like it's a lot of work. Mm. Uh, so I guess that's part of the reason why I. I I'm uh, you know, splitting the magazine between contemporary stories, new stories, uh, and having nonfiction, which does mm. try to teach a bit of that past. But we put that after the stories because I want to have the new stuff kind of integrate the interest of stuff that you can go into without having to do any homework. Yeah. And then in the back, have an article being like, all right, here's how you want to read Elric. <laughs> You know, or here's how to make sense of the publication. Here's where, how you want to go, you know, diving through the secondhand stories. I don't know. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that with, you know, sort of your love of, of, of Moorcock's work, which, I mean, I couldn't be a bigger fan of, and I should probably mention at some point, really lucky we've got him for issue one, a new mm. original story. Which I is don't fantastic. Know, 
yeah, I don't know if it'll be Elric or Corum or some whole new thing. I, I can't tell you what it's going to be, but it is going to be a new original story, not an excerpt from an upcoming work or, or, or a reprint or anything like that. And uh, I just feel so lucky. Mm. And when I mentioned that to one or two people in private, you know, leading up to now, and they said, oh, wow, geez, how'd that happen? Honestly, I wish it was a more exciting story. It just amounts to me being lucky enough to have a friend with his email. I dared to write him and just very, you know, I tried to not be too worshipful. That's off-putting. You know, I just kind of was like, oh, hi, you know, would you, I got a new magazine, you know, I'm hoping the title vaguely makes you think a new world. <laughs> uh, do you want to do a story? And he just responded the next day, very enthusiastically. Yeah. Brilliant. And I sort of pinched myself. I actually had to check again uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was like, are you still, when you, are? <laughs> you know, you know, because I'm about to do all this promo and tell people and I'm worried. <laughs> you know, we said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I'll bless him, you know. Uh, and it was also funny because um, it's how I learned he likes to go by Mike, mm. which felt downright disrespectful. No, no, it's Mr. Michael Moorcock. Yeah. And then those emails are just Mike. And it was after uh, I first got that, an email that taught me that, um, that I read that Amra essay uh, that we mentioned earlier. And was, to my amusement, it's all typed out in career font or whatever typewriter was getting Xeroxed yeah. for Amra. But at the end, uh, it's a big uh, handwritten Mike. <laughs> So I was like, yeah, okay, that's how he's been going his whole life. I should, all right, okay, I'll try to get used to it. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, yeah, gosh, I mean, I couldn't be luckier there. And I'm, I'm very excited to have uh, him on board, of course. And I'm very excited because I found an artist who I think would be a great match to his, his stories. His, his kind of his, his later style. To bring mm. it back to looking at Mike, uh, Mike. I sound so casual, Michael, <laughs> um, Mr. Warcock. Come on, um, you know. <laughs> Uh, to his, his style as it is now um yeah 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 and and that's something else i'm very proud of the magazine actually lots of good art which is part of the fun isn't it of the yeah. genre i think Absolutely. obviously we all think of frank frazetta mm -hmm. i mean he's the guy but there's so many others although fun fact uh sarah frazetta his granddaughter is going to do a bit of art for the magazine oh uh, which is fun yeah. yeah i mean she doesn't pretend to be a grandfather don't put those kind of expectations that's unfair on literally anyone yeah uh but she does enjoy that and she does manage her uh, grandfather's art and estate and that kind of thing so i thought it'd be kind of fun i mean i could, I could have frazetta and moorcock in a, in a in a magazine that's, well what a scoop yeah that, you know have those two last names together in a thing that's that's kind of cool yeah. uh so <laughs> Um, but yeah, I'm really proud of the art. And um, yeah, we're going to have original painted covers for issue one and two. We're going to have original black and white illustrations for all the stories and most of the nonfiction. And our very first stretch goal will be to double the illustrations. Mm. So two for every story and most of the nonfiction, which I as an editor would love because I always want to have an illustration at the beginning of the story, like a cover page. Um, but then you don't want to have something too spoilery if it's that. So if I can get two illustrations for story, great. Title page sort of thing for each uh, story and then something interior nested within it, you know, with the horrible mm -hmm. reveal near the end or whatever. Uh, anyway, pardon me, it keeps coming back to the magazine. What can I say? I'm here to pitch. Um, where was I? More Croc, different editions. Oh, geez. Yeah, well, right. Talking about getting people in and, and, the, and the battle of like the love of how we get lost in these details of publication yeah. order and style and learning. But not wanting to make that into like this vast this thing we have fun swimming in we don't want to turn it into a moat that keeps out new people lest we yeah. starve the thing to death yeah uh, i think and, it's and, very yeah. much a, a modern reader thing where people want to read things in the chronological order for the character and because i run a michael murcock flavored podcast people will sometimes ask me on twitter what's the best order to read x and <laughs> Often people, you know, will will point people to really interesting articles that people have written. Uh, John Davey did an Elric Reader's Guide at one point. But my response is always the order in which you find them in a second-hand shop is the right 
order to read them in. Because when I was a kid, it didn't matter if you were reading Conan novels. I mean, if you read, I think the centenary Conan collection, they're in the order in which they were written. They're not put into chronological order. And that suits me absolutely fine because I read them piecemeal and it didn't really matter to me what age Conan was over the course of that story. It was a Conan story. There's a level of interest attached to, I don't know, the is it the... I always get the, the names mixed up because it was a, a cool story rewritten for Conan. Was it The Phoenix on the Sword? I can't remember. Correct. Yes, Phoenix on the Sword, yeah. which I think was a rewrite of By This Axe I Rule, wasn't it? Yeah, um, it was, yeah. You know, so you read that. It's, oh, right, Conan's mature. He's got, he's got a kingdom. It's, it's, well, that's fascinating. But the next one you read is Tower of the Elephant and is a teenager. It doesn't matter. And I'm the same with the Elric stories. And ultimately, I don't think it really matters if you read the Elric stories out of order. Okay, you might read a story where he's got Moonglum with him. Well, so what? It doesn't really matter. The order is immaterial. Essentially, there are pulp adventure novels. I read Stormbringer before I read any of the others. Nah, because, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, because my, my my granddad, Pops, gave me tons of books, but the first two Moorcock books I got were Warlord of the Air and Stormbringer. The um, I'll be boring the listeners shitless because I've, I've said this so many times, but yeah. The Stormbringer Pocketbooks edition with the Jack Garn cover with his kinky boots and his pixie hat. The cover that Mocock hated. That was my first, (laughs) 50-50, my first ever Mocock story. I can't remember which one I read first. Holy shit, the the character is impaled on his own sword at the (laughs) end, and the sword runs off laughing. It's like, what the fuck am I reading? doesn't matter. But I, I I can appreciate, perhaps, that if you were a completely new reader to Elric and you read everything in order and you could get over the hump of Fortress of the Pearl and then go back to Sailor on the Seas of Fate and then the raw vitality of the stories in Weird of the White Wolf and some of the later stuff and then get all the way through to the end and that's how the saga concludes. Well, there is a tiny part of me that wishes that I had read it that way because the impact would have been so much greater. But ultimately, the way I consumed most of this stuff and I don't know, it was probably the same it's a long time since I read it, and I can't remember anything about it, but if I was reading a Brack the Barbarian story, or... Uh, Thongor. Uh, <laughs> of Lemuria. Yeah, or any of those things. I mean, you know, they're large, mostly crap. But it didn't really matter. So I'm quite happy to consume my fantasy in that way. And I don't really desire things that are enormous arcs, like the Wheel of no. Time, or anything like that. So that kind of stuff doesn't interest me. I want something raw, fast-paced, exciting, visceral and that'll do me you made the point how on how on earth do you consume this stuff and i think it's to each their own if you want it in sequence great me i would suggest people just consume it in the way that most people consumed michael moorcock stuff in the 60s and 70s or even the 80s what mm-hmm. you got in the charity shop which battered mayflower edition of the got on the <laughs> shelf that's the one you should buy and that's the one you should read Absolutely, yeah. I um, I th- I'm pretty sure I started. I couldn't remember the edition. Pardon me. It had Elric's face and close up on it. Um, I think it was from somewhere in the eighties. It was uh, Sailors. That was my first one. And what a start! <laughs> Three yeah. funny little stories stitched together. Um, but God, I love them. Particularly the Gonzo one in the middle of the beer. The two siblings, the big weird siblings. Um, oh yeah, it was, yeah. Agak and, and Magak, yeah. Right, that was it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and actually, that's the one where the four aspects of the champion combine. Yeah. I didn't know what the fuck that any of that was about, <laughs> but I enjoyed the hell out of it. And then yeah. over time, I read um, uh, Eternal Champion Second. It was uh, what was my first Eternal Champion one? Uh, Silver Silver Warriors. Thank you, Silver Warriors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the first one. <laughs> I enjoyed it. All right, 
You yeah. know, now I'm getting picky. I'm going to try and read things in order. I've only got the third Camp Brass story. I'm going to see if I can find the first two and then work through in order. Um, you know, but that's not yeah. only after I've been initially excitedly gobbled up a bunch of whatever the hell I could find. And now I'm slowing me down and going, okay, all right, now I want to try and read some of it in order. Yeah. Uh, so there you go. You find your own path, uh, whatever works for you. But I think that's an attitude that uh, is not as common as it used to be. Uh, and so maybe mm. it's worth, uh, I don't know, writing a nonfiction essay for the magazine. Maybe I should do that, uh, you know, mm. about, about encouraging people. And that's mm. the other thing too, right? It's just, you, again, we, the assumptions, you know, I'm hoping, uh, I'm hoping this is my plan. I will have the, the mental bandwidth and time. I want to do some fun updates during the Kickstarter campaign to cover stuff so basic that I imagine most people listening to this podcast would go, why are you even, why would you do that? Why, but people know what this is. But I think, you know, I'm going to do a short video because I am lucky. I have a lot of uh, comfort with performing and editing and that kind of thing. Um, so I'm going to do some short videos just from my desk uh, to put as little updates on my Kickstarter, maybe one each weekend. I'll do four. I'm thinking right now. One, literally just why sword and sorcery? Mm. Why would you give a shit? What, what's the difference? So I'll just try and cover that briefly and punchily and kind of you know, some of the stuff we've talked about here. But another one after that, why even? I was, I was like, how can I zoom out even more? Why short fiction magazines? Mm. I think there are people who legitimately don't think they exist mm. or don't know and it just hasn't occurred to them. And that's fine. They're not dumb. They're not, you know, it's just not knowing. Uh, they're not what they used to be. Or, you know, a video I want to remake. I made this back when Issue Zero came out uh, and somebody asked the same question. Why hardcover? Why would you get a magazine in hardcover? And I, Because that would have been me a year ago. Mm. You know, it was pure chance in June when the, the magazine idea first cropped up and I was like, what am I going to, what's it going to look like? And I was visiting my parents and I looked over, what the hell is that? And I saw my dad was using as a mouse pad, for God's sake, not all of us in my family worship books, uh, a copy of an American magazine from the 60s called Horizon. It had kind of a very classy upscale National Geographic uh, look to it. Anyway, it was in hardcover. I'd never mm. seen it before in my life. A hardcover magazine. I pulled it up. It was big and beautiful, three columns of text, uh, you know, and, and all that stuff. And uh, absolutely, that was me going, okay, this is this is the beginning of how we're going to figure out how this magazine mm. looks. Uh, and, and I love the idea of how long this magazine, even with my father mistreating it, uh, it survived. And there I am enjoying it all those years later. And I love that continuity of books. I mean, part of, coming back to the Merrill Collection, I love when I ask for something from their shelves to look at and you find a marginalia, you find people writing their names in the corner, their book plates, writing happy birthday, Jenny, 1978 on the inside or whatever. I mean, it's again, that, that thing that the physical object gives you. Now, don't get yeah. me wrong, digital is important. We're always going to do digital. It's more financially accessible. It's good for people who need to use um, text-to-speech readers, that kind of thing. And it's great for people who live uh, outside of the States because shipping, my God. Uh, mm. So, uh, you know, digital has its uses, don't get me wrong, but I'm always going to love the physical object. Um, yeah, so why hardcover? And the last one I want to do, honestly, this is going to sound funny on this podcast, but I'm going to do a video saying, well, you know, I'm excited about Michael Moorcock. You can see, you'll, you'll see on the Kickstarter, I've given him a slightly bigger font, like a, you know, poster listing bands because I mean, yes. he's earned it, Christ. Um, but uh, but some people are going to come in and they're going to, you know, they're people who've never seen Star Wars. Mm. So you're going to have people who don't know who the hell he is or why this Kickstarter campaign is excited about him. And so I want to do a short video where I'm going to do my best. I hope I don't shame myself. You'll, you'll be able to see it uh, <laughs> and tell for sure if anybody can. Just in a brief explanation of like, hey, here's who he is. Here's why you should be excited. You know that Game of Thrones thing? You know, House of Dragon? You know, Matt Smith? Well, he bears a passing resemblance to this other character. You know, <laughs> you know, or some of these ideas, the you know, multiverse, you like that stuff with your know, Spider-Man mm. everywhere? Guess what? <laughs> you know, uh, and just kind of just because I and that's really just riffing off of the, what I was been doing for years with my volunteer work at the Merrill Collection, because you, you have to draw these connections 
from uh, past stuff or uh, stuff that's not as well known now as it maybe was before to the present, to the most common things you can, as long as you can do it like legitimately and sincerely, not being facile, um, because that's how you get people to care. And that's how you get them to start going, oh, maybe I will swim in those deep waters where you're sitting going, well, actually, the publication order should be, you know, <laughs> this is the same. You've got you to unwrap them. Um, so, yeah, yeah. How did I get there? Sorry, again, too much caffeine today. Sorry, folks. But no, uh, it's, it's all good. You know what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Reminders when the Kickstarter goes live. Right. So the Kickstarter goes live February 2nd. It will go live as soon as I go flying out of my bed and run to my computer and press the button. Because one thing I've learned <laughs> is you cannot schedule launch a Kickstarter. Right. So if you're in England, you might not see it until oh noonish uh depending on again on how early i get up and how early i press the big red button um but uh, people in eastern standard uh, time zone where i am uh will probably see it go hot at 7 a.m something like that maybe earlier 6 a.m let's be real uh and so it'll run uh you know for 30 days starting february 2nd and people who uh, get in on day one on one of the physical backer tiers will be able to get an exclusive um you know just the first day backers bookmark featuring original art that I commissioned from uh, Sapro, one of the great artists we have on board, that will never be shown online or used in anything else. Mm. Literally just the bookmark. So is you're, what you're buying really is the nice little exclusive super limited edition piece of art for your bookmark. Um, and then people who back it, period, uh, over the course of the Kickstarter will uh, be thanked in the issue uh, number one. And that, of course, will not be the case for people who buy it later when it goes up in the shop uh, that we'll be having online, uh, assuming the Kickstarter funds. Because uh, if you want to print enough, we can keep selling them afterwards, right? Um, and ideally, the issues will ship together, which I know is a bit funny, but it saves a lot on shipping uh, for, for all parties. Uh, in, I'm hoping October, you know, maybe quicker if we can pull it off, but I don't want to overpromise. I, mm. There's something else I would definitely say to anybody who wants to do something like this. Whatever timeline you're thinking of, add a month. <laughs> add a month or two uh, and if it goes quicker great but that's way better than the other way around hmm. uh you know i said i would get issue zero out sometime in september and i did september 30th <laughs> it was really tight uh so you know, and even now i mean i'm happy i'm going for it like i said it's launching february 2nd but there's definitely a part of me that wouldn't mind another four weeks to do more promotion <laughs> hmm. so we you know we'll see how it goes we'll see if it succeeds but i'm feeling optimistic we have a murderer's row of talented authors and artists and we're taking everything, me and the guys on the staff, we're taking everything we've learned from putting out issue zero into making an even better physical artifact for, uh, and, and beautiful layout, of course, will be benefited to the digital people as well. So, yeah, yeah, you can find it. Uh, I guess just by going to Kickstarter and searching for newedgesawandsorcery.com, although I, of course, have given you a link to chuck in the notes there. And uh, if all else fails and you listen to this and you walk off and go, shit where did he say what the hell did oliver you can just go to new edge sword and sorcery.com it'll have all the links including the kickstarter impossible to miss i'm sure i'm gonna put a big graphic up uh yeah yeah and i just if this goes well my hope is to build on it and build on it you know i want to do more issues of the magazine obviously i'm also thinking about doing like kind of anthology style uh, issues of the magazine so like you know non-fiction fiction art all the same stuff i've described but themed around uh romance or horror or whatever i think i mentioned mm -hmm. that a minute ago pardon me and then if we really get going i would love to publish book-length anthologies and novellas you know i'm such a big fan of novella and the sword and sorcery works really well at that scale you know, I don't I don't always think that the pacing of Sword and Sorcery works well at like longer novel lengths. Mm. But if you're doing say, well, I mean, coming back to Sailors, that was 24,000 words, right? Mm. Pretty good. Uh, novella length. Uh, yeah, I'd love to do my, my fantasy, my absolute fantasy. And I'll shut up for a second. After I say this, It would be to do like a quarterly subscription of novellas 
which would be available in digital and soft cover to be you know affordable etc but the big event there for me would be just to have the most beautiful hardcovers I could possibly assemble with all the trimmings. Uh, just, oh, oh, I'd love to get to do that. But first, first I've got to find more issues of this magazine. So uh, please do uh, give it a shot, folks. I promise uh, you won't regret it. Well, I'll be back at it and I'll be praying for the reading ribbon because I'm a sucker for reading ribbons. I'm extraordinarily oh, yeah. superficial when it comes to these things. I like hardback <laughs> books and I like reading ribbons. But before we go... I need you. It's a shame. You are a gamer, but you probably haven't got a D20 to hand, so I need you to pick a number between 1 and 20. Oh my God. I have so many just in the other room. Oh, whatever. Oh. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I'll pick a number. I'll pick a number. <laughs> pick a number between 1 and 20, and I shall figure out. We're going to do this three times, and okay. these are the patron demons that are going to receive a copy of issue zero of New Edge Sword and Sorcery. So, go. All right. Well, let's put it down the middle. Ten. Ten. That will be... Liam Jones. Liam J, I'll be sending you a copy of New Edge Sword and Sorcery, Issue Zero. And again. Brilliant. All right, let's give the critical failure some love. One. One. That will be going to Andy Clark, a.k.a. Clarky the Cruel. And our nice. final number. Uh, let's give it a DCC Warriors critical hit, which can come in at a 19. 19. That is Norman Beresford, the OG patron, who was our <laughs> first ever patron on oh brilliant well, you it. <laughs> yeah so those three folks uh keep an eye out on your post uh, an issue of uh issue zero i should say of new edge sword and sorcery magazine will be coming your way thanks for that oliver and thanks for coming on and talking about this and we hope to see you out there in the ether and wish you all the success in the world thank you very much <laughs> Massive thanks to Oliver for dropping by Darian Toms. Check out the show notes for links to his podcasts and other things we touched upon, including the Kickstarter for issues one and two of New Edge Sword and Sorcery magazine. And you can find Oliver on Twitter as at O'Breckenbury. In other news, Nand, our collaborator on the audio journals of The Wanderer Connolly, has completed and released Journal Volume 2, their second full album of sonic excursions into the spheres. As ever, it's deep, inspirational stuff and a big inspiration for me to kick on with writing Volume 3 of the journal. It's out now on Bandcamp, I'll link to it in the show notes and we'll play this show out with a choice cut, Domain of the Rocks. First though, thanks as always to our patrons, starting with those without tear, Anthony Paconti, Tim Cardos, Dave Dempster and Sebastian Weetabix. Next, our Chaos Engineers. Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter, Benjamin Fletcher, Dave Griffiths, Dave Voxman, James Knight, Jim Kirkland, John W. Lays, Jules Lawrence, Lee Gary, Mal Pertwee, Mary Catherine, Matt Saltz, Menion, Nelbert, Paul McRandall, Ray Otis, Scott Butler, Simon Perrins, Tony Malazzo. And finally, I mentioned last time out, that Sir Tancred Belforest, Queen's Champion, had boarded the Donblas. As is our want, I dropped Sir Tancred a line, and he got back to me to say, Hi Andy, greetings from the second ether, brackets, North Devon. Thoroughly enjoy listening. You've captured something essential to the spirit of Mocock's work with this, every episode is a treat. I think I arrived at Mocock through a combination of Howard, Chaikin, J.G. Ballard, Hawkwind, and Alan Moore. Astounded by Pyat and Cornelius, and worked my way in and around from there to the point of near obsession. Elric et al. came a bit later, but I love it all the same. 
I think I typed in Mocock Podcast one day, thinking someone must be doing something these days, but what you're doing is above and beyond. One of the few perks of the times we live in is that such things can be put together and shared so widely. Cheers, Sir Tancred. Brackets, Patrick. Thanks for finding us tonight. We love being part of this community and being able to have these conversations, and thank you for that kind feedback too. It means everything. And of course, thanks to our crafty Jugaderos, Alexander Harris, Ian Stead, Loz, Taylor, Matthew Broom, Toby White, Tom Murphy, Mark Hebden, Graham Holden, and Jason Connolly. And finally, eternal thanks to our patron demons, Andy Darby, Clarky the Cruel, Fred Keish, Gareth Wilson, Gwen Barlow, Imria, Janie Stim, Jay Risa, Joe Monty, Liam Jay, Miles Reed Lobato, Mortmain, Neil Burton, Paul Hillary, Randall Gatlin, Steve Round, the OG patron Norman Beresford, and last, but never least, Robert McMillan. Right, enough yakking, we'll be back very soon, but for now, don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruinsatoutlook.com. The webpage is breakfastintheruins.com. We have our Patreon page too, there are a few extra odds and sods on there. But for now, take care, stay safe, we will meet again soon on the Moonbeam Roads.